my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. For this episode, I am joined by John Paul Zaccarini, Professor of Performing Arts at Stockholm University of the Arts in Stockholm, Sweden, a school providing, quote, education and conducts research in the fields of circus, dance, dance, peta, I forgot to look that word up, how to say it, film, media, opera, performing arts, and acting. Previously, the artistic director of Company FZ and a member of the dance company DV8, John Paul is a trained dancer and actor who has directed and choreographed circus and theater productions in the UK, Denmark, Sweden, working with circuses and choreographed aerial dances for the Royal Variety Performance, the Nobel Prize Award Ceremonies, and Hermes Luxury Design House. John Paul has published several research papers, which include the 2019's The Melancholy of Lost Movements, 2017's Fallen, The Thought of Circus, and 2013's Circle Analysis, Circus Therapy, and Psychoanalysis. In John Paul's words, he's homo funky and street spunky, serving up South London shade and immigrant working class realness. I love that. (laughs) And now, without further ado, here is John Paul. Greetings and welcome. How are you? Very good. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining me. We are at the beginning of the week here in Sweden. How's your day been so far? It's been a great day, in fact. I've been with a PhD student discussing uh, 13th century female mystics, intimacy and violation and the pleasures of violation. And (laughs) that was a good start to my day. When you mean violation, is that seeing the same way as it was back in the 13th century? Uh, I think it means kind of the ability to be open, passive, and available to be entered. So being violated by the grace of God, I think, in this instance. So we were talking about various forms of, like, ecstasy and being with people, being with each other, and allowing yourself to be open and receptive to the other. And how violation, I think, in terms of creating art can be intensely pleasurable, but also is a risk. (laughs) So this was just a one-on-one session with someone? Yeah, with a student. It's always very exciting speaking with him um, around his work because we talk a lot about what pleasure might mean in a kind of expanded way, Um, not just the everyday pleasures, but much more maybe otherworldly pleasures. want to ask more questions about that. It's already intriguing to me. (laughs) Definitely doesn't sound very Swedish. No, and he's Hungarian. (laughs) (laughs) What it made me think of when talking to him, because he's also talking about the spiritual act of self-annihilation, in a way, getting yourself out of the way to be open to grace, to be open to ecstasy, And I just said, have you uh, researched bottoms at all? Because it makes me think of the practice of bottoming. Mm. And then he's studiously scribbling down. Oh, my teacher says, 
<laughs> research bottoms. <laughs> I'm guessing he's straight. <laughs> I, well, he's queer, so he was very, no pun intended, open to the conversation. I was talking about self-shattering, removing yourself from the situation, being open. And he said to me, does that mean that as a guide of the experience that I do in my artwork, I have to be the top? I was like, well, not at all. I don't know. Let's think about that next session. <laughs> How can we all be bottoms in the experience with no one having to take the lead and be the top? <laughs> uh, putting that in the context of sexual positions, gay sexual positions, it sounds like it's an opportunity to trust. Exactly. And I think this was, this is a key theme in his work that I'm helping him with. How do you get us to trust you so that we become open and receptive? Like very technically, the welcoming in of, in this case, grace and ecstasy. It sounds like a dance, a partner dance. Absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of we had set up this interview at the beginning of whatever week that was. And then just by chance, I ran into you at a performance, a dance performance for, um, was it Batty Boy, the Jamaican Norwegian artist, uh, Harold Bahari. Yeah. Were you connected to that production? No, not at all. But I'm not going to miss a production called Batty Boy. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in South London around a lot of Jamaicans in that part of London, Elephant Castle. Okay, yeah, because I wondered, with that being the title of the piece, was that a way of reclaiming a negative term? I think, I think it must be. I mean, the performance was so energetic and luxuriant and, like, nonstop. I mean, the stamina, that stamina of that guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> by the end of it, he was kind of mime humping for about a good sweaty 10 minutes. Yeah. And I was like, please, Lord, let him come. Please, Lord. <laughs> I'm exhausted watching this. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what to expect. And in line with the conversation that I'm having with you, I feel like that was the second time for me that I've really, speaking of being open and receptive, that I was really receptive to I don't know if this is the right terminology to more modern or contemporary dance. I actually really liked the performance. It, it just really made me aware that there's so much more out there that I need to discover and to absorb and, and embrace. Speaking of, how long have you been a professor at the university here in Stockholm? I was an associate professor in circus for about four years. And then I became full professor. I've never been a full professor for... Uh, two and a half years now. Okay. And now I'm a, I'm a professor at the Research Centre. I work across all the art forms that we work with here, not specifically anyone in particular. I have a profile area, which I kind of tend and take care of, which is the area of bodily and vocal practices. So being a, a vocal and, and physical performer myself, yeah, that's my realm of expertise in terms of research. I do my research through my body and, and with my voice. And in quite intimate ways sometimes, being a brown person in very white Sweden, I've realized that actually my skin is like an interface of the research. Like my skin is what creates the data and it's my skin that receives 
the data from a very white environment. Mm-hmm. In my research and my teaching, I always bring it to the body, the relationships that that body creates when walking into a room and how, in a sense, you can be in control of the script that that body performs, as opposed to always walking into a room or a space and having like a preconceived script written for you, depending on your gender presentation, the color of your skin, the way you speak, especially in the fields that I work in, it's majority white. Mm -hmm. The artistic fields, the educational sphere, the university. That's interesting. When I saw the piece just referencing Batty Boy, because I came with a friend of mine, Teresa, and then seeing a couple of people that we both know there, Anna and Andrea, afterwards, I was telling my friend that I was really, really glad I saw that particular piece with people of color. And not that we were the majority, but just having that energy around me, I think it helped me to focus more. And I don't really have words for that, but just kind of tying into what you shared when you talk about the body, are you referencing like how others are interpreting who you are, what you do? That's a really good example. I mean, I I really hear you. If I had been the only brown body in the space, apart from the performer, and that's often the case, I would have been too concerned with how the others were viewing that brown body on stage and how they might have been conspicuously not looking at me to refer back to their experience. Am I looking at this right? How is he experiencing this? I've had that before in the Arthur Jaffa experience at the Moderna Museum, the, the visual artist Arthur Jaffa, where I was walking around this exhibition, which was only black images, and being the only brown person there. And the incredible anxiety I was feeling of also being a piece of art in the space, mm. like being an object to be viewed and interpreted and referred back to or to mirror their experience. So. I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm aiming to create more spaces in Stockholm where, or more moments in Stockholm where people of color can appreciate each other and their ideas and work together without that added pressure of being a reference point for blackness or a representative of blackness for those who are curious. You put the words to what I was feeling, and I hadn't even thought of that, that I wasn't focused on the other audience members. There was a couple times where I glanced just by chance, but then to your point, I I just looked away. It was about me absorbing the performance. I hadn't thought of it that way. It's interesting because you get a chance to actually focus in on yourself and not maybe other people's gaze upon you or on something else. Um, I was looking at other people because we were sat kind of opposite each other in in various constellations as the performance moved around. I was very interested about (laughs) where people's eyes were because there was a lot of uh, (laughs) anus in that show. (laughs) There was like up front, in your face, spread cheeks. There was a lot of rosebud happening in that show. Yeah. I was interested in where, where people were looking and if they were looking away or looking to something else, 
on his body because it was right there in front of you. Yeah. So I, I was amusing myself looking at other people, <laughs> not looking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I discovered you, uh, or you came onto my radar through your YouTube channel, Instagram, Future Black Space. The name alone just really intrigued me. And then I did a little bit more research on it, but just to hear from you, what is Future Black Space? Future Black Space, it's a, it's a real and both imaginary space for people of color to be with each other and do their work without the pressure of what I've called the white gaze as a form of recuperation, breathing space, where we don't have to over-explain or just be in a constant introduction mode to our work. Because often what happens is when we stand up in front of a white cohort or group or meeting, let's say everyone gets an hour to do their stuff in front of other people. I find that we spend the first 55 minutes just calming everyone the hell down before we actually get to the point. Hmm. We have to do a lot of uh, teaching around the notions of brownness or blackness and what we mean and who we are and what we're not doing. We have to give a little history lesson. And then we have to calm everyone down because we're talking about race. And even if we're not talking about race, when we stand up in the room, suddenly race becomes super evident because we're the only brown person in the room. We do all that calming down. And then at the last five minutes, we finally get to say what it is we have to say. And everyone else has had a whole hour to move forward in their work. If we're constantly over-explaining so that we don't cause or provoke those outbursts of white fragility, it's very hard for us to move forward. And I think it's very pertinent what you said about your kind of energy being able to focus in and down upon yourself and your relationship to the performance that you were experiencing. Future Black Space creates spaces where we can do just that, focus in on ourselves. We don't have to share so much about our experiences because just having a screen full of brown faces immediately allows us to take a breath. And then we realize how much we're holding our breath in those other spaces, how we're censoring our speech for fear of causing this upset. And censoring our speech means that we're not being 100%. We want to, we're constantly interrupting ourselves and stopping ourselves from being whole and, and full. And so during the process of having a lot of these sessions and workshops with people of color, mostly from the black diaspora, but it's open to anyone who feels othered or blackened, <laughs> blackened mm -hmm. by the white gaze. What we understand is this thing called the white gaze isn't about white people. It's often the white gaze we bring into the room with us, the white gaze with which we view ourselves, self-censorship, internalized stereotypes, interruptions. We don't allow ourselves to be as black as we are, whatever that means, right? Whatever that might mean to you or me or her or someone else, this is the space to explore what your blackness might mean to you when you don't have to refer it back in a negative way to something that is white. It's only when I walk out of the house that suddenly I remember, oh, okay, no, I'm different. You put me in a script and suddenly I'm trapped in your white fantasy of me. You know, connected to that first video that I saw from your YouTube channel was the one Afro Swede. 
I really, really liked it. I felt it. And the words that came to my mind were beautiful and haunting and sumptuous. But I don't know why. It's just those those words came to me. Yeah. That was interesting because the um the hair pieces are huge. I mean they're huge afros, they're huge curls. It's one of a series called Black Occupations. It's a pun. Occupation meaning a job. Occupation as dancer, librarian, but also occupying space, right? We're gonna occupy the space. An occupation is also a military intervention. It was meant to happen in the heart of the city um, and we were meant to take space because my feeling coming to Sweden is that blackness or black expression is minimized and we all minimize ourselves to not cause a fuss, quiet, etc, etc, etc. We can't take space here. I'll get back to it, but on the side, I remember uh, one morning my afro just popped up so it does that when I when I grow it out, da, 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 and then suddenly one morning it will just pop out, and there it is. It's bouncy. I don't walk. I strut. And my hips move differently. I'm so happy when my afro pops out. And I was walking down the road, suddenly realizing that the afro was bouncing. You know, I had some groove in my step. I'm half Italian, so it was a little bit John Travolta, like a brown John Travolta. <laughs> I saw this coming. There was a guy leant up against the bus stop. And he saw me coming. I saw it coming. And I heard him gather the, the phlegm in his throat to spit at me. Wow. I dodged it and I said, miss me, bitch. And I walked on and I was thinking to myself, that's really interesting. It's almost like my joy is unbearable to you. So I was really aware of this moment that, wow, my joy is threatening. So these wigs were a symptom of that, that. I thought, we'll do this. But then, because it was like coming up to election time, as I was devising the idea in my head, and at election time, things are bad on the street. People are emboldened. They will say more racist stuff. And I thought, I can't have my dancers be that black in the center of town. So we put them in the countryside in the video. Mm-hmm. There they could occupy space. I think it makes it a little bit more mystical, a little bit more magical, but also it's sad that that's where you will see that in Sweden, like in the forest Mm. where there's no else and at midnight. So there's something very sad about the loneliness of these figures who are so, thank you, sumptuous in their kind of, I would say, extravagant blackness a kind of extraness that Sweden doesn't really allow. I mean, that's the culture. That's fine. It's the culture. If it's a slightly more reserved culture than London or Italy or wherever. But when it's experienced as having to minimize your actual self, then that, that becomes um, <laughs> a health risk for us, I feel. It's unhealthy for us to close ourselves down so much because we might forget we might forget that we're magical. That's so violent, that man, and sad that he would want to do that. He doesn't see joy. He doesn't see attractiveness or whatever, positive adjectives. He just sees something that he needs to extinguish. Something that's taking up too much space for his liking. 
So did academia bring you to Sweden? In a sense, I came to Sweden to have a child with my best Swedish friend. Yeah, so we are co-parents. And then I thought, I'd better get a job and stop being a freelance experimental artist. Uh, and so I got a job at the university, finished my PhD here, and then quite, quite quickly got a, a, like a super good job here. And how long have you been in Sweden? 10 years now. Yeah, in the intro, I mentioned your research project, Circle Analysis, Circus Therapy, and Psychoanalysis. Can you share what is Circus Analysis? Yeah, circoanalysis. Oh, circle, sorry about that. You always have to make up a new word when you, make, when you do a PhD. You're meant to be inventing something. It's a combination of circus and psychoanalysis, kind of Freudian version. What I did was I observed that circus artists didn't really have a voice in their training. It was quite a classical procedure of like, do what you're told, copy these things, and you will be perfect, and then circus will love you and you will be a circus artist. Having read a lot about psychoanalysis, I knew that that kind of demand on someone or the demands that you make on yourself is the best way to squash desire. And desire is this constantly moving, slippery, anarchic, unruly, wonderful, dangerous thing. And I wondered if it would be possible to allow the circus artist to express their desire against those demands. At the same time as responding to those demands, also have their own desire. So I studied psychoanalysis. I went into psychoanalysis for three years and I would put circus artists on the couch and allow them to have this moment of really speaking about themselves to kind of discover what was driving their artistic creations. After 30 minutes of talking about circus, they start talking about their mom and their dad, their relationship with their teacher. So all these relationships, but out of all these people that they spoke about, they never once spoke about the audience. Because without the audience, what is circus? It's going to the gym, basically. That's the relationship you're trying to establish you and your public. So I came to the conclusion that there must be some kind of relationship they are repeating in their circus act to the audience that is in need of some kind of healing or moving on from. You know, circus and actually is, I mean, if you did it, you'd realize how violent it was to the body. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's super dangerous. It's risky. I just thought, well, is there like a profile of a person who usually goes into the circus <laughs> masochists obsessive compulsives hysterics narcissists i don't know i do know that it, my my psychoanalyst she says to me what exactly do you do in your circus act john paul and i knew that if i said oh i do a double twist and a somersault that doesn't really mean anything to someone a lay person so i said well i seduce you i shock you i stun you i keep you glued to your seat i keep your eyes glued on me I make you fall in love with me briefly. And you know I'm unattainable, which makes you love me more. And she said, John Paul, what kind of person does that? And I was like, okay, yeah, I understand. So 
that kind of person, <laughs> in my case, is the sort of person that goes into the circus. I know you are a trained actor and dancer, but did you train all at the same time becoming a circus performer? I did one at a time. I wanted to be an actor, so I, I trained as an actor. But I was so in love with dancing that at the same time training as a dancer, and then finally ended up in like this thing called physical theatre, which is where you do both. I realised that I couldn't do a written text. As much as I loved like Shakespeare and the American playwrights, Eugene O'Neill, Tennessee Williams, etc., Arthur Miller, I was in love with that canon. It was somehow very hard for me to do that. In physical theatre, we create the scripts as an ensemble. And then I realised, no, there's still something missing in this. And when I arrived at the circus when I was around 22, 23, I thought, no, this is it. Mm -hmm. This is the way I want to express myself to the world. Because of those things I mentioned earlier, because of like unspeakably dangerous and intoxicating desires, I think. There was something there that so painful, so risky, so fantastic, in fact, and so far removed from uh, groundlings, <laughs> people on the floor, something more escapist than being an actor much more escapist if you can't allow me a place in your world for all of this intersectional queer working class brown mess i will create that place and actually the nearest place unfortunately is like 20 meters up in the air away from you <laughs> it seemed like that was where i really found my expression so very much a healing thing for me to be in circus how soon after you studied did you start to create your own work? Actually, I left drama school after a year to create my own work. So instead of fulfilling the three-year program, I was too impatient. And I knew the work I wanted to do was so different to what I was learning. It was already super queer, the work I wanted to create. It was anarchist. It was political. And no one else in my peer group or teachers were very interested in politics. They were more interested in getting a better voice, being a better actor. And I was only interested in the content. So I left immediately and started creating kind of my own pieces. Kind of getting back to intersectionality, I, I watched your um, 2020 piece, the Mixed Race Mixtape. I really liked it. You know, I was immediately pulled in with the pejoratives that you use of you know, faggot, peasant, nigger lips. It's weird to say all that. <laughs> but how strong they can be, going back to what you said earlier, us taking on, or me taking on the white gaze. Can you talk about this body of work? Oh, uh, yeah. Mm. The reason I made that piece was that I was in the circus department at the time. It was very white, it was very straight environment. And it was kind of overseen by this like invisible male normativity, like a masculine normativity. It wasn't written down anywhere, but the rules were male. It's meant to be a meritocracy, but the girls are treated the same as the boys, but they have different bodies and different skills. So the demands placed on the women, sorry, not girls, the demands placed on the women are in a way kind of unfair. So there's this masculinist vibe happening, which sometimes 
emerges in homophobia, jokey homophobia, but nonetheless, it's come on, it's homophobia, it's microaggression. Mm-hmm. I had enough of this. Every day I had to do a queer thing, a feminist thing, and a brown thing or a black thing. So in the cafe, in a classroom, yeah, in the corridor, in a meeting, so just to remind you lot that there are other ways of moving and being in the world that aren't straight, white, cis, and male. They were shady, they were draggy. My queerness allowed me to have a sense of humor about it, which made sure there was no arguments. They just accepted that I was a little camp and a little bitchy and a little shady. And it's very simple things like walking into a class and saying, morning, white boys. Just that was enough. And they would laugh, but then they would realize, oh, I actually am white. I can also be racialized. And so then I wrote the show like a lecture, like a performance seminar. But instead of kind of writing academic essays around intersectionality, I thought I would use my own experience and use the forms of spoken word and hip hop and song to sweeten the pill, (laughs) soften the blow. And funny thing about this whole show is I wrote it in about three weeks. Oh, wow. But it took me two years to present it publicly. So I wrote the whole show, and then I went away and studied up. Did my black study, did my queer study, went back to kind of uh, Marxism and the theories of working class, whether that be white working class or not, or immigrant working class, to really kind of back myself up. So that if you come for me, I'm taking it quite far. Mm -hmm. I'm quite direct in the show, you know, with shade and with humor. I'm reading the fuck out of the white people in the audience. But if I'm going to do that, I need backup. So if you come for me, I will have the reference. I will have the theory. I will have the examples. I will have everything. So it took me two years to actually present the show because of fear of creating outbursts of this fragility in the people that received it. What was the response from the public? The response is always super. It's just super. And I think it's because there's a mixture of super directness, like, I can't believe he's saying that. How is he getting away with that? And then the next minute being super vulnerable. This is my life. People have often described my style as like tickling you to make you giggle and then sliding a knife between your ribs. The people in the audience who are queer and of color, just going, (laughs) going, you say it, you tell them. Because it's like for a change, there's someone on stage speaking for us. So there's a twinkle in my eye going, you heard me, sister. You know I'm saying this for you. The research project, Future Brown Space, is about making work that's for you. And if someone else turns up, that's fine. That's fine. I'm not going to exclude you, but you're probably going to have to go away and do some homework to understand why the person next to you, the brown person next to you, was laughing so much. It's not just about having a black superhero. It's about having a black story mm-hmm. in that black superhero movie. There's a difference. Have you always been somebody who's committed to the only phrase I could think of is telling it like it is? Yes, I have been. There was a 10-year space of time when I focused in on the more (laughs) 
grown up business of what it actually takes to create a touring company. I worked with someone else for 10 years. It wasn't a waste of time. It wasn't the work that really feeds my soul. Hmm. When I decided to stop doing that and go into academia, academia was the place where I could continue to tell it as it was. Well, the position and platform of being a doctor and a professor. I found where I need to be in order to continue to push the conversation. Even in this conversation, it's healing. It really is healing and relatable. I was going to just reference from the mixtape performance, two things, quotes that I wrote down were his clothes started saying it, his room started smelling it. And for me, like when I look back on those moments, those little blips where somebody was telling me you're different. So it's like, without knowing really who I was, as far as being queer, somebody was letting me know you're different. It's important, I know, to focus on the youth and the younger generation because they are the base for, you know, this thing moving forward. But for those of us who are already here, it's like, I still need healing. I still need help. I've come across these moments where I'm like, oh my God, I'm still learning. How much more healing is there to be done? I mean, the good part of that is that it keeps me young. I'm not settled in anything. And I think our generation... We kept ourselves under wraps, our true selves, for such a long time. That can't be good. I mean, we're thriving now. And this podcast is, I think, I hope, about people that are thriving in their work with the world. Mm -hmm. That particular song, The Innocency Blues, it came about because I wondered what would have happened if that sissy boy that I was had been allowed to continue that journey and not put the sissy in a box and bury it. I mean, I still kind of even present a little cis. Sometimes people confuse me for being cis male presenting. And that's just habit. I can't even speculate upon what kind of person and how free I would be if that sissy boy had been allowed to develop his expression without all that oppressive violence the subtle censorship that happens at home. You know, and I had immigrant parents who wanted me to succeed. And if I wasn't working class and brown enough, for fuck's sake, don't be gay as well. Mm. I mean, this presentation is kind of, it's habit. <laughs> but you put in there too, you said that film is flawed, plus reverse, stop and start your story. That really is relatable to where I'm at in my life the last few years. It's like, yes, I have been traveling down this road. I never got off the exits. But you know what? All of a sudden, I'm seeing that green sign says I can go that way. So that means I can start my story over again, which doesn't mean that I'm erasing what's already happened. No. But I can, I can, I guess, start a new chapter. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. It's not about erasing a story or a person that was actually it has a lot to do with forgiveness yeah it has a lot to do with forgiving myself and when i do that then a different story emerges it's a, re a release and a relief so i think forgiveness is a strong one for me i mean even though i'm not a practicing christian i was trained as a christian i was trained as a catholic those figures of speech 
whether it's forgiveness, redemption, salvation, compassion, grace, beatitude. I'm finding them again, but I'm finding them as the me now, as opposed to how they were forced on me. <laughs> it allows me also to um, have compassion for, what's the way of saying this nicely? Compassion for white fragility, let's say. I'm here too, you're here too, we're here together. For God's sake, there's got to be a way that we can talk about this without freaking out. Right. You've got to find a way of, of doing the work on yourself somewhere else. Let's talk about stuff we can do. Get your feelings out of it. When did you become aware of your gifts as a performer? There's a factual answer and a, and a true answer. <laughs> two, I think they're two different things. Factual answer was a school play. And when my mum came to see it, she went, oh, okay, I wasn't expecting you to be good. You're an actor, aren't you? <laughs> so that was around, I think, about 11 or something like that. But I think the truer response, this is about both intersectionality, but also having to be a chameleon, being put into a very posh, private school, rich, upper class, you would be expelled for being gay at this point in time. So having to perform being straight, having to perform class, shifting the accent, learning the accent. I mean, you don't do this consciously as a kid. You just try and fit in so you don't get beat up. And as I was saying before, this performance of masculinity, mm. all of that is a performance. And, you know, I performed that and rehearsed that so many times so that I wouldn't slip up. Like I can do that show in my sleep, so to speak. And then, you know, later on, being queer in the 90s in London, not a liberal place. This is the time of HIV and AIDS. This is Margaret Thatcher. This is uh, Christianity against queers. Going into a gay club and being one thing and then coming out of that gay club the second you open the door and being another thing, that's all performance. Yeah, that's the true answer. The other one's a fact. Passing is a performance. You know, it depends on my hair, depends on my clothes, how I might read, being very light-skinned. I can notice that suddenly I'm passing for, not white, but Mediterranean, for example. And I realize I'm a little bit of a double agent. They haven't realized that I'm of color. Those have been very interesting moments in Sweden for me. They haven't realized I'm biracial. So you do notice a stark difference, not so much culture, because that's somewhat easy to recognize, but the undercurrents of racism, the difference between here and the UK. Yeah. I mean, in the Mixed Race Mixtape, I don't know what the line is, but I call it the everyday mosquito stings of you don't quite belong. Not quite sticks and stones, more like splinters, cold and constant, like a Swedish winter. And that metaphor of the mosquito stings is, I think, something quite used when people are describing microaggression, because it's not something you notice when you get stung, but you get home and you itch. Having to really deal with not only this underlying racist atmosphere, but also the structural racism of how things are actually created and how things run, 
which is even more invisible. For me, the metaphor is more like asbestos. <laughs> like it's in the walls and it's toxic, but no one will remove it because it's not profitable to remove that asbestos and rebuild. But also then we're breathing that shit in every day and we wonder why we go home and <clears throat> cough blood. Slightly more extreme, but it was a, it's a way of trying to understand how pervasive and like in the air like particles it is. It's invisible, but it's again everywhere. You're battling your own double consciousness. Am I paranoid? I think when you don't have a community of people to share that with and to hear a sister say, I hear you. No, you're not crazy. That did happen. She didn't know she was doing that, but she did that. And that was downright racist, even though no one in the room noticed. And I find it interesting because when you feel the thing, it's very hard to process that quickly all the data that you need to process for you to be able to respond and say, no, excuse me. No, you can't say that. What you've just said demeaned me or objectified me or something or other. So there's a kind of neurodivergency, which I think comes with being black in an anti-black world. Or when they give you who they are, and I don't think they realize it sometimes. I had that this past weekend. A friend was there and then an acquaintance. She was very inquisitive, me as a black American, why I was here in Sweden. And then got on the subject of career. And I said, I moved to LA from Arizona to be an actor. And I was frustrating at the time because of my own self-esteem. And I was always being sent out for the nice guy or whatever. And I wanted to be edgy. But edgy to me meant something more exciting. And she goes, oh, I could see you as a drug dealer. <gasps> wow, you don't even realize that. <laughs> they're doing it. Don't realize they're doing it. And it's even worse when it comes in the form of a compliment. Yes. It's confusing to receive a compliment that has a knife underneath it. Yeah. And you're going, oh, I just, for us to process that. I was watching her and I was like, you are coming at me with your intelligence and you don't see that you just made an ass out of yourself. <laughs> just to relate it to what you were sharing, yeah. You know, you're here in Sweden and you're from the UK. Have you lived in other countries besides here in the UK? No, this is the first time. It's the first time I've immigrated. I understand my parents a lot better now, who were both immigrants. I'm like, oh, I get you. And I'm like one of the most privileged of immigrants, like super educated, straight into a job. There's a whole network here, really good at English, okay with language. I have all the privileges, but still an immigrant. They didn't have any of those. Mm. I'm just being a whingy millennial, even though I'm, even though I'm Gen X. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. And just to ask if you have any final thoughts or insights you'd like to share. When I work with um, anti-racism and diversity, and then with black groups when I work with Uplift, I like to use the stages of grief, you know, shock, denial, bargaining, rage, depression, hope, uplift, reconstruction. When I'm working with people of color, I'm constantly trying to say, there is uplift. Can we go there? Can we stay in looking up and looking out and looking forward? 
we have a melancholic history, which, you know, it returns to us as points. And not just our history of 40, 50 years, but 400 years or 600 years worth of it. How can we be in uplift? The racist weather in the States affects us. We think we're in reconstruction, hope and uplift, and then another death, and we're back in shock. We're back to crying, but we'll be back in uplift soon. For me, it's a question of just getting used to it. Something's gonna happen. Some shitty thing will happen at work, like the drug dealer thing. Okay, I'll be thrown back into shock and then bargaining with, and then maybe being codependent with my white colleagues. <laughs> I know where I'm heading. I wanna stay in hope. And not just that, I'm trying to live the future now. I'm trying to imagine my Afro-futurist fantasy now. Thank you for that. And where can we engage with you, follow you online? Future Brown Space on Instagram. And as soon as our website is up, that'll be on our Instagram, Future Brown Space. I owe you an apology. I think I quoted it incorrectly once and hopefully just one time. <laughs> Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.